3: So tonight we're going to learn a lot about aquatic dinosaurs. Wait, don't call whoa, them no. Whoa, no, yeah. no, no. Don't call them dinosaurs. Don't call them dinosaurs, you'll get smacked.
4: Mm. Don't call them dinos, huh? Do not. Uh, do not. Warning to our listeners, do not call them dinosaurs. Do not call them dinosaurs. <laughs>
0: yeah. whoop, whoop. Is this part of the introduction? <laughs>
3: Hello and welcome to Monster Talk, the show that lets science turn the light on monsters. I'm Blake Smith and together with my co-hosts, Benjamin Radford and Dr. Karen Stolzno, we examine monster stories through the lens of science and skepticism. Tonight, we'll be peering into the dark waters of Loch Ness to see what science can tell us about the plausibility of a population of prehistoric plesiosaurs surviving in those depths through to modern times. Our guest, Dr. Adam Stewart-Smith, will help demystify Nessie, and at the same time will tell us about genuine mysteries surrounding Mesozoic marine reptiles.
0: Monster dog.
3: Apparently there are some people who think there's a monster of some sort living in Loch Ness. Have you heard anything about this, Ben? Uh,
4: monster by, you mean, strange, unknown aquatic animal?
3: Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
4: I've I've heard something about that. I I have been to Loch Ness and uh, and I have seen some curious uh, things. Mostly people who are looking for the for the Loch Ness monster. Ah, did you just say Loch? Loch? Yeah, I try to. Um, <laughs> Thank
0: you. Impressive. I,
4: uh, well, I you know I, I I I try not to do Loch Ness because it, it's 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 I think it's actually Loch, but uh, I the closest I can do is Loch. Is that is that right, Karen?
0: Um yeah you're doing it with an american english uh oh sound though.
4: Uh, what's the what's the correct it, uh, uh
0: lock, oh,
4: oh, lock, loch Loch oh loch loch is there a guttur or not?
0: Yeah there is. Yeah. Loch. It's um, represented by an x in phonetics.
4: Can you do it for us again?
0: It's germanic. Loch. It sounds a bit welsh actually.
4: Loch. Oh. Oh. all right I'll, I'll try to anyway and there's our <laughs> intro right there <laughs> well, now that we've burnt uh four minutes
3: so so there's an animal not living in the lake or maybe it is living in the lake or maybe it's near the lake and sometimes takes a bath whatever right so or some something people, yeah or something some people think that there's a giant monster living in that lake whose name not one lake, to, yes. I'm no longer going to attempt to say um, and for some reason, of all the animals that they could think it looks like or see it to appear as, they most closely ally it with plesiosaurs.
4: Yeah, so, I, my understanding, my understanding of the reasoning for that is is the long neck. Um, I mean, other than that, there's no real. I mean, obviously, our our guests can can speak more to that. But my understanding is that the main reason the plesiosaur has been has been uh, put advanced as, as a main candidate is because the supposed long neck that you see in, for example, the Ryan's photos from 1970, early seventy four seventy five, 75. Uh, and, of course, um, you see the sort of, same sort of uh, thing with the Mansi photo in 77 in, in Lake Champlain. So, uh, and, 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 of course, there's the flipper.
3: And the surgeon's photo, too. Right. So historically, I mean, from a giving us the classic Nessie profile, The surgeon's photo comes first, right? Yes. So, and we know now that the surgeon's photo was faked. So it seems likely that the surgeon's photo was modeled to look like a plesiosaur on purpose.
4: Well, yeah, I mean, that that actually brings up an interesting question in my mind, because, uh, you know, the, the, the very nature of identifying objects in water, particularly living objects, um, is is fraught with problems. I mean, you know, by definition, you're only seeing a tiny part of whatever it is. And so it makes sense to people that um, that if you're going to see a part of a lake monster, you'd see its head. I mean, you could see a lake monster's toe or tail or something, but most likely you would assume that you would see its head.
3: That's right. So the head could be at water level like an otter or it could be a swan-like animal. At, at the last
4: DragonCon, I was actually on a panel with a, a person whose uh, name escapes me, but he was sort of a, a um, eccentric fellow. And, um, choose my words carefully here, and his position was uh, that he and I actually had a cryptozoological debate. Apparently he was the best they could find on that end of things. Um, and he claimed that the uh, the, the photographs Of the Loch Ness monster and other monsters, uh, particularly the Loch Ness monster, was it was actually a giant tongue. Wow! Yes, he (laughs) he believed that he believed that what we were seeing was a picture of the tongue.
3: That is really bizarre.
4: I
0: thought most people claimed that it had uh, eyes and a mouth,
3: as my tongue does. Yes. (laughs)
4: Well, Blake, you, you drank a lot of paint thinner as a child. Let's just be let's just be clear about this.
3: So he may be alone in that hypothesis, or is there a school of thought that? Is, uh...
4: No, no, he he was alone in that hypothesis. In fact, uh, I uh, when he said that, I I asked him to just sort of to repeat that because I'd never I'd never heard anything quite so strange, and I didn't bother to refute it. I thought it was pretty much self-refuting.
3: Yeah, it does seem like it would be. Could he think, except for the Rolling Stones? Could he think of any other creatures that would move tongue first throughout the world? Uh, well, there's <laughs> Jim Zayman. Yeah. I, oh, yeah. I guess so. Rock stars and rock nest tie in there. Nests. Uh, <laughs> 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 wow. Cryptozoology never ceases to amaze me. Uh,
4: <laughs> You know, people have been talking about the creature in that lake since uh, the 30s. Um, but I think it, my understanding is that um, it wasn't really until Roy Mackle, for example, uh, wrote a book um, called The Monsters of Loch Ness. Um, and, you know, he would, I, I think he was one of the first ones to really put forth the idea that it was uh, perhaps a plesiosaur or other creature that was known but thought to be extinct, as opposed to positing, you know, oh, maybe it's a. Cross between a whale and a unicorn, so I think I think he was one of the first to bring that up.
3: Yeah, the uh, the there's such a wide diversity in the photographic. Uh, I don't want. I hate. I hate to call it evidence. The claims. Let's go with the claims. With the claims. The photographic claims. Um. <laughs> uh, the there's the uh, the Stewart photograph which uh, has been debunked as hay bales with canvas on top. Um, there's all kinds of, almost like they call Bigfoot the blob-squatch photos. The uh, There's just a lot of blurry photos. And the most clear photo, which, uh, again, is now known to be a hoax, the surgeon's photo, does depict something that looks, you know, plesiosaur or like. But until you get to the Rhine photo with the flipper, there's not much more um, to support that idea of. But what's the story with the Rhine photo?
4: Well, there's a couple of them. I mean, one of the there, there's two main. Well, there's, depending on how you look at them, there's two or three main photos that Rhine, Robert Rhine, put out in the '70s. I think mostly '74, '75. Uh, the first one was the the sort of the neck form that you could make out of of you know something in the in the water, whether it was suspended particles or air bubbles or what have you, is of course up to debate, but. Uh, he certainly saw a neck and claimed to see a neck. Then there was the, the flipper photo, uh, which again, uh, the one that was released to the public shows a reasonable approximation of, of uh, what you know the sort of flipper that we might expect to find on aquatic mammals. Uh, and then there was the uh, the 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 dragon-headed tree stump thing, uh, which I, as, I believe, as as you were pointing out, was was more or less thoroughly debunked.
3: Yeah, that, that's the way I've understood it. And in, in fact, if you look at all the evidence that we have for Creature in the Lock, some of the most, um, in my opinion, damning evidence against there being something is the fact that you would need a large population of these animals and that there needed to be a big food source for them to eat. And there doesn't seem to be, based on the studies that I've read, enough caloric source material to support a, a colony of animals in the lake of the size that are described in the monster encounters.
4: You know, I, my, my understanding is that it generally leans towards, yes, there probably isn't enough biomass to, to support that, but that it's not necessarily conclusive because, um, you know, it, because there's so many unknowns. I mean, we don't know how big the creature necessarily is. We don't know how many there would be.
3: But we do know that there's been complete sonar surveys of the lake and tons of photographic uh, material... And we've seen fewer monsters over time, not more. The more observers we have, the fewer sightings we have, which seems uh, incongruous.
4: Yeah, it certainly seems paradoxical. I mean, especially when you look at the, uh, the quality of the surveys of, of Loch Ness. I mean, one of the most thorough ones was done only a few years ago. I think it was maybe four or five years ago, uh, done by BBC, where they used GPS, they used side-scan sonar. It was the most thorough examination of the lake ever, and they found precisely nothing unusual or strange. And I remember I actually wrote up a short piece in SI about that, and the leader of the expedition had said that he, he had actually kind of thought that they might find something. I mean, he, he didn't go into it trying to debunk or disprove it. He sort of said, well... I, I kind of thought there was something there might be something to it, but we we looked at it from top to bottom, and there's simply nothing there.
3: Yeah, I know oh. a lot of crypto fans really love Nessie, though, um, because I think the the mythical creatures become uh, about as big of a of an icon as, as as Bigfoot in some ways. Nessie gets a lot fictional coverage. She shows up in movies and. Uh, Cartoons a lot. I, I know my kids love um, Scooby Doo cartoons, and there's um, several that have to do with lake monsters and Nessie, that kind of thing. So she gets a lot of airtime, mm-hmm. which you know builds expectations. I think so. It's probably really disappointing to go out and sit at the lake and look for Nessie. Although I see the lake itself looks pretty nice.
0: I wanted to ask a question. If we could go back to the evidence or claims, just briefly. Ben, do you know anything about the Dinsdale video at all? Uh,
4: I, I know a little bit about it. Um, as I recall, it's uh, it's sort of a it's a it's a wide shot of something in the water, <laughs> as most of them are, um, and it's leaving a wake. Um, again, there's there's a couple of them. I'm, I think I'm thinking of the right one, and um, the, the the question has always been. Is it just a regular, uh, unusual wave? Is it, uh, of course, a, a head and neck leaving a, a wake trail behind it? Um, I, I don't know that anything conclusive has ever come of it. And I th- I don't. As far as I know, even the even the Nessie proponents admit that it's basically ambiguous and and we'll never know.
0: Because uh, it's touted as being apparently the best video evidence that we have uh, yes. for the Loch Ness monster, and I've heard that it, it's a boat.
4: Right, I, I think that's the that's the most likely explanation, especially when you look at at the at, again the, the distance. I mean, this was taken. I, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but it was taken from from quite a ways away. And so, whatever is, I mean, it's not, you know something is moving. That you know, it's not a hoax almost certainly. Uh, you know, it's a it's a you know film of something moving in the water. Uh, I don't think most people would dispute that. Of course, the question is, is it something that's unusual or or is it simply. A boat, or um, you know, or, or an animal, or something else like that. So, um, be but nice to
0: get access to to that. I haven't seen it anywhere.
4: Karen brings up a very good point, especially if you can look at something like the Dinsdale film. Wasn't late sixties, early seventies?
0: Uh, I think nineteen
4: sixty. Sixty, right? Much as with the Patterson Gimlin film, uh, sixty-seven. <laughs> the obvious question is, why is why is the best evidence for this? 40 years old. I mean, what, what? Almost 50 years old now. Why would apparently, all the people...
0: Apparently he cited uh, Nessie many times, but didn't take any footage of, of that. Didn't take any photographs.
3: I look at his site. It's called LochNess.org. Actually, it's loch .org, And they say that um, they actually got a chance to re-examine the film after they were originally refused access and that their analysis is that it is a boat... Hmm. Mm-hmm. You're right, though. I haven't seen it uh, widely exposed, if there is such an analysis.
0: Yeah, not like the Patterson-Gimlin footage or anything like that. It's just uh, not like the iconic photographs of the Loch Ness Monster. It's just not out there at all.
4: Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I do remember seeing uh, the, the footage itself. I've forgotten exactly where. It, it might have even been at one of the conferences where someone, someone had, whether it was a bootleg version or not, I don't know, but it was a case of where... They could show it privately, but they couldn't broadcast it or anything. So, I think Blake had asked about some of the Ryan's photo analysis in SI. Let me just take a quick look at my uh, my book, Lake Monster Mysteries, Investigating the World's Most
3: Elusive Creatures. That's a fine book. Now, who wrote that? I'm not familiar with that book.
4: That's uh, by uh, Ben Benj, Benjamin Radford and Joe Nickel. Uh, no, oh. <laughs> uh, I better do that again. That's by Benjamin Radford and Joe Nickel. The, uh, the flipper photo was taken in 1972 by Rhines uh, through his uh, Academy of Applied Sciences. And what had happened was that they had released this image known as the flipper photo um, that did, in fact, depict sort of a triangular fl- flipper that, you know, again, you might see on some sort of aquatic animal. And this was touted as being, hey, look, you know, live, we, we got a photo of, of Nessie's finn. Um, and this you know, was sort of intriguing, and this and that, uh, until uh, two writers for SI, I've forgotten their name off the top of my head, but two, two Skeptical Inquirer writers went and did their own sonar research at Loch Ness. Uh, in the process of, of doing their investigation, they, they sent a request to the Academy of Applied Science and, and Mr. Rhines to see the, the original photograph of, of the, uh, the flipper. And what they sent them was a photograph that was basically a bunch of bubbles it was this sort of random fuzzy dark inchoate thing that looked nothing like a flipper and they uh, wrote back and said uh, there must be some mistake I mean I don't this isn't this isn't the photo that was published and they said well no the, the one oh it was we understand what the problem is um, the one that you're the one that you're referring to was uh, was retouched apparently it was extensively retouched and it was retouched to make it look like there was a flipper there uh, in my book, yeah, it's it's really quite remarkable. In in my book, uh, Lake Monster Mysteries, we have we have uh, both the original and the retouched photos of the Ryan's 1972 Ryan's Nessie flipper photo, and uh, it's uh, to to avoid anything libelous, I'll just say that there seems to be a very very fine line between fraud and retouching.
3: Is it okay for us to include that in the show notes? That that, that photo. Sure. Okay. Cool.
4: When the Academy of Applied Sciences was questioned about this. They admitted, of course, that, you know, in fact, there had been some retouching, and they admitted that, you know, the retouching was, well, rather extensive and <laughs> and basically made a bunch of bubbles look like a flipper. Uh, but they said that was, um, I think the phrase was uh, standard procedure, which to my mind raises questions about the other Ryan's photographs from uh, Academy of Applied Sciences.
3: That um, reminds me of all the times I see there's... On, and of course you see this on television. Television's what it is. It sometimes misleads because it's trying to tell a story. I'm no like, way. Yeah. Skeptic! track. Uh, uh, oh, I know. But uh, they, they see a track on the ground. Or even like the, um, the, the the blood stain on the, uh, screwboard. They're examining this, this blood stain and they draw a- around the blood stain with a marker. And they're like, okay, look, it's shaped like a footprint. <laughs> and I'm like, well, how does that make any sense? I mean, you know, the, the creature steps down and, you know, spills blood on there. Um, why, you know, it's a V shape. You know, they're implying it's a footprint. Just the toes happen to go off the board. But right. I mean, if you just spill blood, there's just as good of a chance that, the, you know, the blood could be dripping down and make a shape. I mean, it, it's your mind is saying, oh, that's a footprint. That's, you know, that's that. And you're filling in the blanks. So yeah. it's, it's like a very forced uh, version of uh, pareidolia where you're creating manually <laughs> the image that you're allowed to fool you. So right. I'm not sure if they're aware of it or not. but
0: It's so uh, a certain conclusion.
3: <laughs> yeah.
4: Well, it's always much easier to find the footprint when someone points it out to you.
3: It is, or if they paint a circle around it with paint or put tape <laughs> down. So.
4: Right, if they hire an artist to really retouch it and make it look
3: exactly like what you want it to look like.
0: Monster Dog.
3: So we're talking today with Dr. Adam Stewart Smith, and you're currently working with the National Museum of Ireland, is that correct?
5: That's right. I'm in the uh, Natural History Division.
3: Excellent. And so it looks like you're working in documentation of collections.
5: I'm actually working on the uh, entire collection in the Natural History Museum in Dublin with a group of other documentation officers. And it's a, a museum-wide project to uh, to give every specimen a number, effectively, and, uh, and make the collections uh, usable for, for researchers and uh, for anybody else interested in, in uh, looking at the collections.
3: Excellent. Well, it looks like Mesozoic marine reptiles are your passion, though.
5: They're my passion. Academically, that's what I study. So in my, uh, in my PhD and in my master's project, I, I studied these animals. And in my own time today, I, I, I still dabble in, the, in plesiosaurology.
0: Is that a technical name?
5: Um, it is amongst plesiosaur researchers, yes.
3: <laughs> the reason we're talking to you today is because many people who think that there is a large monster living in Loch Ness describe an animal that strongly seems to resemble a plesiosaur, and we wanted to ask some questions about the lives and habits of these animals, and, and find out what the facts are about these animals, and, and then look at whether or not that seems like a plausible hypothesis. Okay, so what can you tell us right now from the fossil record about these animals? Did they live in freshwater or saltwater or both? Or
5: Well, for a long time they were thought to be uh, strictly marine, um, but we now know that they uh, could actually venture into lacustrine deposits, which are, are, are edging towards freshwater deposits. So around uh, the mouths of lakes and into into shallow freshwater systems.
0: Do saltwater reptiles have any issues being moved into freshwater, or vice versa?
5: Well, the main difference, of course, is the uh, salt content in the water. So, originally, Plesiosaur ancestors would have been uh, freshwater organisms, and they moved into the marine environment from there. And so the main issue would have been to cope with the amount of salt entering your system. So reptiles today, such as saltwater crocodiles and and turtles, um, have developed salt-secreting glands, which is a a way of removing the salt from the system. You, You might see footage of say turtles on the beach and they're crying so they're they're crying the tears the tears of the salt and so it's very likely that plesiosaurs although we have no direct evidence um had some salt secreting glands for dealing with the excess salt in their systems um whether there would have been the reverse situation moving into freshwater um i'm not too sure do you follow
3: biology of uh, saltwater reptiles? Do you look at bones mostly, or do you still follow the biology uh, advances we've, we've learned? Well,
5: p- primarily I'm looking at the bones of the animals. Plesiosaurs are especially interesting because there's, there isn't really anything alive today that you can compare directly. So there's no living descendants of Plesiosaurs. For example, dinosaurs, you have birds, which are living descendants. Um in plesiosaurs, they didn't leave any descendants when they died. They became extinct and, and left no relatives. And so it makes it especially difficult to try and work out what's going on with their biology. So it's actually quite difficult to answer these sorts of specific questions. So for the most part, I concentrate looking on the bones and the anatomy of these animals. And if there's any clues as to their soft part anatomy in their osteology, in the structure of their bones, then uh, that's the basis for the, for the studies, the bones.
3: I was listening to a um, uh, Canadian broadcasting uh, science show, Quirks and Quarks, which I really enjoy. And they were talking about saltwater snakes. And they said the saltwater snakes have to come to the surface and drink rainwater, that there's like a thin layer after a storm where there's freshwater deposits in, in the, over the ocean, and that's where they come and get their water. So for reptiles this large, it seems like they would have a, a very large freshwater requirement.
5: It's, uh, again, it's one of these things that you just can't really tell from from a fossil organism with no living relatives. So there's a lot of speculation in, uh, in the study of plesiosaurs, which on one hand it makes it quite frustrating, but on the other hand it makes it really interesting. Sure. Um, so, sure. And, and also the study of plesiosaurs is, uh, is actually quite a new science. Um, in terms of dinosaur research, uh, we know a lot about them, but plesiosaurs are maybe 30 years or so behind the dinosaur research. They just haven't had this, um, this huge concentration of research effort, so it's actually, you know, we're just starting to look into these sorts of questions for these these animals.
0: So why is that, do you think?
5: I don't know. Why do why do people like dinosaurs? I don't know. Because it's, it's they're addictive. awesome. <laughs> well, of course they are, but so are, so are pterosaurs and plesiosaurs and mosasaurs and ichthyosaurs and, and all of these other extinct uh, prehistoric reptiles. It's just that dinosaurs seem to be picked out, and I think there might be something just to do with the name dinosaur, and so many people colloquially will include things like plesiosaurs and pterosaurs and all these other groups within the within the dinosauria, but strictly speaking they're not, and so if you pick up a scientific book, you know, for the popular public on dinosaurs, then they just have a token page maybe for plesiosaurs, and uh, and similarly in uh, some of the research articles as well there there's just not that much of a historical uh, concentration on them so i don't know it's it's intriguing
0: hopefully you can fix that for us
5: uh, yeah hopefully yeah the
3: the walking with Dinosaurs series has done a lot to advance the uh, i think the public's fascination with
5: it has and there's also a new movie um on uh, sea monsters as well an imax movie by national geographic so i think that the the marine reptiles are actually you know in the next few years are going to become increasingly popular well, that's why we picked this topic <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. we the cutting edge
0: they do seem to feature in popular culture to the extent that uh, on your website you've got all of those toys that are available around the yeah. world
5: yeah well there are, there's plenty of toys um, I've picked out uh, all sorts of toys from all over the place but if you were to put this this is pretty an exhaustive collection of plesiosaur toys <laughs> uh, my collection if you put this to an exhaustive collection of dinosaur toys they're going to be outnumbered 100 to 1 you know, dinosaurs still have that edge for now For now, for now. In 30 years' time, we'll see.
0: Did plesiosaurs lay eggs or give live birth? And if you can tell, then how can you tell?
5: Um, There are a few groups of reptiles today, including boas, the snakes. And uh, several groups of extinct marine reptiles, such as ichthyosaurs, which are fish-like marine reptiles, and mosasaurs, which are elongate-bodied, almost snake-like marine reptiles. And we know that these animals gave birth to live young. They didn't lay eggs. And we know this um, in extant animals, the the living animals, because they've been observed giving birth to live young. And in the case of extinct organisms, such as ichthyosaurs and mosasaurs, they've been found with babies in the stomach region fossilised especially ichthyosaurs which have numerous good examples of juvenile um, or neonate unborn fetuses in the stomach region uh, the situation with plesiosaurs is actually controversial however it seems very likely given that these other marine reptiles have evolved this ability to give birth to live young that plesiosaurs also gave birth to live young they developed a very uh, specialised body form for living within the water, so it's unlikely that the large plesiosaurs anyway could crawl out onto the land to lay eggs if they did. In addition, some of the closest relatives of plesiosaurs, um, some nothosaur-like animals called pachypleurosaurs, have been found just like the ichthyosaurs and the mosasaurs with the fossils of um, neonates within their um, abdominal region. And so this is quite... You know, these are quite closely related organisms, so again, it seems very likely that plesiosaurs were doing the same thing. There's never been anything published on plesiosaurs specifically saying that they gave birth to live young or, or not. There's no eggs of plesiosaurs, for example, and there's no um, published plesiosaurs with a juvenile in the abdominal region, but there is one specimen which I'm aware of which does show a baby plesiosaur within the abdominal region, but because it's unpublished, there's not really much uh, we can say about it So we just have to wait for somebody to uh, describe that specimen. Where is that? It's actually in the USA. Um, I'm not sure exactly where. I've seen the photographs.
3: There's a lot of variation in the types of animals I've seen labeled as Yeah. Are all these variations the same species?
5: Uh, There were several um, different types of plesiosaur. So your plesiosauria is your your, um, order. So you have your plesiosauria, which is the, the group as a whole. Then within the plesiosauria, you have two subdivisions. On one hand, you have the long-necked forms, which are called plesiosauroids. And then on the other hand, your other main lineage of plesiosaurs is the short-necked forms, which are pliosauroids. So you have pliosaurs on one hand and plesiosaurs on the other. It gets quite confusing because the word plesiosaur colloquially can be used to describe plesiosauria as a whole or just that one major lineage. And so then within those two lineages, you have several families, and within each family, you have several genera, and within each genus, you have several species. So there's, there's hundreds of plesiosaur species around the world. Wow. So
3: within these different various body sizes, um, and you're saying there's not much by way of soft tissue preservation in the fossil record... Can we tell what kind of things they ate or what their caloric requirements were like?
5: Caloric requirements are quite difficult uh, because we don't know much about their biology, but we do know what they were eating. So there's several lines of evidence for determining what a, a prehistoric extinct animal ate. First way is to look at their teeth. And if you look at the teeth, you can make a direct comparison with a living analogy. So if you look at the teeth of, say, um, a long-necked plesiosaur, the teeth are very needle-like and sharp, and they compare very well with uh, fish-eating gavial crocodile, for example. So you can make a a nice inference that long-necked plesiosaurs were eating the things that gavials were eating, which is fish and then uh, squid and things like this. On the other hand, you have the large-headed forms, and their teeth are very similar to something like a killer whale. And we know what killer whales are eating today, um, pretty much anything they want. They can eat uh, large mammals or, or fish. And so you can have a good bet that these large-headed pliosaurs were eating anything they wanted as well. So that's one method of determining what the animals ate. The other, uh, the other obvious way is to, uh, to look at their stomach contents. And there are some cases of plesiosaurs where stomach contents are preserved in the stomach region and this confirms the evidence from the dentition from the teeth and uh, confirms that the long-necked plesiosaurs were indeed eating things like fish and squid squid they have um, hooklets like little hard hooklets on their tentacles and these have been preserved in some of the long-necked plesiosaur stomachs that's neat and then yeah it's really cool and then the the large-headed forms Um, obviously, they're bone-crunching animals. So you can find animals, uh, you can find specimens of uh, bones which have these large tooth marks from the pliosaurs still in them. So whether they were killing them or just scavenging them, we're not too sure, but we do know that they were eating them. So we we have a good idea of what they were eating. And uh, again, because there's so much variation within the the order, um, there's lots of variation in what they ate as well.
1: When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments. Understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at Chinwagpod and
5: Wagon.
0: And what was the kind of climate that they lived in and how widespread were these animals? What was their global distribution?
5: They were global. So we have plesiosaur fossils from Antarctica, we have plesiosaur fossils from the Canadian Arctic and uh, uh, the coast of Norway and everywhere in between. So within a very short period of time, um, during the Mesozoic, this is the time that the dinosaurs lived, the oceans were full of these marine reptiles, plesiosaurs, so they they really did live cosmopolitan.
3: Just kind of a side... I saw you preparing fossils on your website. How do you clean away the mineral deposits from the fossil, and how much is that is normally pulled away?
5: Well, it, it depends on the uh, where the fossil was found. Different fossil... Uh, formations have different types of matrix. So you can have matrix which is um, full of pyrite, which is a, an iron mineral, which is extremely hard and uh, extremely difficult to prepare. And then you can have specimens which are preserved in a sandstone, which you could literally pick away with your finger. So I've just come back from uh, Portugal, where they have some plesiosaurs from Angola. And the matrix surrounding these Angolan plesiosaurs is, is just a soft sandstone, so it's extremely easy to prepare. So it depends on the, uh, on the age and the, and the type of the matrix that the bones are found in. Some bones you can find on the beach, and they have no matrix at all, so they just are a three-dimensional bone, which is naturally weathered out of the rock. So it depends.
0: And uh, how big were these animals?
5: There was a huge amount of variation within the group, um, obviously, you would have babies of the individuals, which would be smaller than, say, a metre. But then if we're just talking adult forms, then they would range from about one and a half metres up to giants, perhaps 15, maybe even larger, 15 metres. So so if we're talking about the long-necked forms, an animal like Elasmosaurus, which is one of these very long-necked forms, has a neck which is half the length of the body. So it's the, the, most of the neck... Most of the length of the animal is made up of neck. Um, But in total, the animal was about 15 meters long. So these were really quite sizable animals. And then on the other side of the tree, you have your large-headed, short-necked pliosaur forms. And these also could reach up to about 15 meters. And then you had everything in between. So just like you have all sorts of shapes and sizes of dinosaurs, within plesiosaurs, you have all sorts of shapes and sizes.
3: One of our listeners, Sharon Hill, wrote in this question for you. The common view of lake monsters shows the animal with a very flexible neck. However, there were some findings on plesiosaurs to show the neck was flexible horizontally, but not vertically, and certainly not capable of achieving the S-shaped often drawn. What's the latest view about neck flexibility, especially how it relates to how the animal feeds and breathes? Okay, well,
5: when the first plesiosaurs were discovered, they were often portrayed with a a swan-like neck, like sometimes arching out of the water. And some reconstructions also showed the neck in an almost snake-like posture. And it was hypothesized that this was the function of the neck, that the neck would coil up like a snake and then strike out to, to grab a fish or some sort of squid. If you actually look at the bones in detail, it's actually very clear that they weren't flexible at all. Each of the vertebrae, and there's many vertebrae in a plesiosaur, but each of the vertebrae is very tightly articulated. They also have processes sticking forward and sticking back, which interlock with each other. And then on the top, they have a a spine, and these spines also closely interlock. And so the plesiosaur neck was actually a rather stiff rod-like structure, and it it certainly couldn't coil up like a snake, and it also was unable to to adopt this swan-like pose. Furthermore, if, you, if we're talking about things like the Loch Ness Monster, these are often depicted with the neck arching out of the water. Now, just because of physical constraints, it's impossible to do this. If you imagine you're swimming in a pool and you try and stick your your leg as far out of the water as you can, you, you simply can't do it because you, you're displacing the mass and you, you, your body moves Below the water. And so, not only could they not adopt the pose physically because of the restrictions of their bone, even if they could adopt the pose, they wouldn't have been able to stick the neck out of the water, as in, for example, the, these photographs of the Loch Ness Monster or other sea monsters.
0: And uh, speaking of supposed evidence for the Loch Ness Monster, I was just reading about the Dinsdale film on your website, uh, which sure. is supposed to be the best evidence, uh, video evidence for the Loch Ness Monster and supposedly this shows a creature that moves with a paddling action. So will this be in keeping with the known locomotion of the plesiosaur?
5: Um, it, it, not at all, no, <laughs> because uh, originally, uh, again, this is quite, it's quite interesting because there's lots of correlations between the descriptions of um, Loch Ness monster sightings and what plesiosaurs were thought to look like or thought to behave like at the time. So in the 50s and 60s, then these... Uh, Uh, sort of descriptions would have fit quite nicely, but today we know they're not. So I find that quite an interesting correlation between the uh, the, the descriptions and the science um, at the time. But in in terms of the swimming, they didn't row. Plesiosaurs were originally thought to have rowed along using their limbs as paddles, a lot like a Viking Viking boat. So they'd have a, a strong, powerful backstroke, then they'd feather their limbs to reduce the drag to move them forward and then push them back again. We know from looking at the um, construction of the the joint where the humerus, the main arm bone, and the femur, the main leg bone, meet the girdles, um, that they just couldn't adopt this motion. So they actually had a more up and down flying sort of motion. So their limbs were actually developed into wings for underwater flight rather than paddles for paddling along. Well, one of the big questions is not how they move their individual limbs, which we actually... Uh, are quite confident about this flying motion. The big question is how did they move four limbs uh, relative to each other because no animal today has four limbs which they use for locomotion, propulsive locomotion. So a plesiosaur is like the equivalent of a penguin with an extra pair of wings on the back. And there's nothing al- around like that today. It aquatic, Things right? Like, I mean, a- aquatic, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, of course. I saw a horse yeah, so
3: that was... No.
5: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah so, so moving around, you could say a turtle has four pairs of limbs for swimming, but it actually only uses its front limbs for swimming. Wow. Okay. Um, yeah. So the hind limbs are just used for steering. And in a plesiosaur, you could say, well, maybe they did the same. But if you look at the limbs in the front and the back, sometimes the hind limbs are even larger than the forelimbs. And they're both a very similar shape, this wing-like shape. So they're clearly both used for propulsion. But the question is, how did they move relative to each other? So did they all four of them move up and down together? Or did they all move forwards and backwards together? Or did they alternate so that when the front limbs were moving down, the hind limbs were moving up? And so there's all these different hypotheses, which we're at the moment trying to work out, which is the, the most likely. But what we do know is that they weren't rowing.
3: That's really so. That's really neat. Uh, how are they doing that? Are they using? I mean, can you see where the muscles connected and kind of like hypothesize about how things were configured in that way? Is that how it's been?
5: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There's particular processes on the uh, on the limbs, and there's also muscle scars. So you can you can reconstruct the uh, musculature of the limbs and of the girdles, and you can try and get an idea of how um, how they moved. The problem is this is how we know that they use this modified form of flying where they, they move the limbs up and down rather than forwards and back. But the, the difficulty is trying to determine how each of the limbs moved relative to each other. And that there's a lot of speculation in that. Experiments have been done throwing two people in a pool, for example, attaching them to each other, giving them a pair of flippers each and, and seeing what, what works best. Not particularly scientific, but it's a lot of fun to watch. And then... People have tried to create robotic um, plesiosaurs, which they've pl- thrown into a pool. And they've, they've tried to program them to see um, if or moving all four limbs together works best or if moving them alternatively works best. So there's a research effort at the moment to try and determine exactly d- how they did move.
3: I can't think of any of this doesn't mean much, but I, I can't think of any reptiles that don't have a land-based portion of their life, even if they're aquatic most of the time. But but but, mm-hmm. the, but the massive frames of the plesiosaurs, you're saying, seems to imply they probably didn't lurch up on the beach.
5: It, not just their, their frames. It's also the fact that their limbs are so well-developed for an aquatic lifestyle. So they don't have um, a very strong articulation of the limb girdles to the vertebral column. And so if they were to find themselves washed up on, say, a beach, if they were to try and move along... All of that force on the downstroke, one of these powerful downstrokes, would not be transferred to the body. So underwater, this is fine because all of that force is transferred to the water and moves the body along. But if you if you want to move, then unless that force is transferred to your body, then you can't move forward. You also have the, the huge problem of a mass in a very large organism. Maybe small plesiosaurs you know, with their smaller mass might have been able to circumvent this problem and may have been able to move along in in small hops but that would be pure speculation and as we've talked about with the uh, probable ability to give birth to live young there would be no real reason for them to come out onto the land anyway because they didn't need to lay eggs or anything Right,
3: and I, I think I wasn't thinking in that way, but I am now. <laughs> 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 I need to think of them more like dolphins than... Uh, than that...
5: Exactly, exactly. I mean, plesiosaurs weren't the only group of marine reptiles. You have other marine reptiles like the ichthyosaurs, which are very dolphin-like, and we know 100% that there was no way that these guys could move around on land. And so... This is just one example of a group of marine reptiles, which were 100% restricted to the marine realm.
3: They've always reminded me of turtles, right? They're just a little bit of yeah. their body shape. So, But they have mm-hmm. such a long neck. So what, what do we think the evolutionary advantage of such a long neck is?
5: It's quite interesting. When the first plesiosaurs were described, they were described as a, looking like a snake thread through the body of a turtle. Um, so your comparison to a turtle is, is apt. Um, The function of a long neck is another one of these really difficult questions to answer. Similar to the four-limb problem, we just don't know what animals with four limbs do because there's none around today to compare them to. Similarly, there's no marine organisms, marine tetrapods, animals with four limbs, which also have a long neck. So there's no marine animals like whales or fish or dolphins that have a long neck. There's no, there's no other animals around today that we can compare them to. So the question of what they were doing is a difficult one to answer. Obviously, they were doing something well because they lived throughout the Mesozoic period. So this is 180 million year duration. So they were not failures at all. They were very successful. So their long neck, which actually increased in length throughout their evolution, was certainly doing something very important. But we just really aren't too sure what. The main hypothesis at the moment is that the long neck was used almost as a disguise so it would be able to um, the head, the small head would be able to penetrate into a, a, a school of fish for example without the school of fish realising that on the other end of this extremely long neck was a, a giant predatory marine reptile and before the fish would know what had happened they would have been you know snapped up in a go. But uh, it's just not really possible to to tell exactly what these long necks were used for. Also, the neck is a very vulnerable part of the body, so it doesn't seem like a very sensible thing to do to have this very vulnerable part of your body exposed in such a way when you have organisms like mosasaurs, which are large predatory animals, other large plesiosaurs with the short necks living around you in the same waters. So to, uh, to put your neck on display like that seems quite a, a foolish thing to do from an evolutionary perspective. But obviously it worked, whatever they were doing.
0: And uh, plesiosaurs were air breathers, weren't they? So they would have needed to remain close to the surface most of the time? Yeah,
5: yeah exactly. They Just like all reptiles, they, they had lungs and they, they breathed air. So they would have uh, surfaced um, yeah, several times a day um, like turtles would. Actually, this is another good example. Um, going back to the Loch Ness Monster idea of why it's very unlikely that a plesiosaur is the Loch Ness Monster if the Loch Ness Monster indeed exists, because plesiosaurs, being air breathers, would have to surface frequently, maybe every hour or so. And if this was the case, then you would be having sightings constantly, yeah. and uh, we just we just aren't. So right. But it's a question that always gets asked. When I think we
3: talk about this with biologists: is what kind of a breeding population would you expect to have to have to keep a population like this
5: alive? Yeah, it's uh, it's difficult. Obviously, you can't have just one or two animals living in the lock. It just it wouldn't work. It wouldn't be a viable population. Um, we're talking maybe a hundred individuals or so, um, bare minimum. So actually, quite a quite a lot um, when you're talking about a, a single lock. And these are potentially animals which are fifteen meters long. So, um, but again, because there's uh, because they're extinct organisms, it's very difficult to say um, to answer these sorts of questions with any amount of certainty.
0: So, as you say, um, if, how likely is it that the populations of plesiosaurs are extant today? Say on a, a one to ten scale, uh, being completely ridiculous to scientifically likely?
5: Well, well, you have to look at, of course, at the evidence, and and the evidence is nothing. So. Given If if your scale is 0 to 10 and your evidence is 0, then you'd you'd have to say 0, that it's very, very unlikely. Um, That doesn't mean they don't exist. You can't prove a negative, of course, but uh, there's absolutely no scientific evidence whatsoever. When do plesiosaurs disappear from
3: the fossil record?
5: They were part of the KT extinction event, which is the same extinction that killed off the dinosaurs and uh, many other groups of marine reptiles, the pterosaurs and uh, ammonites, these squid-like invertebrates. So they were part of that mass extinction 65 million years ago at the end of the Cretaceous period. And between 65 million years ago and today, in rocks of those ages, you don't find any plesiosaur fossils whatsoever. So... Again, this is a, a good indication that it's uh, very unlikely that these animals are around today.
3: Do we know, I mean, we, do we have a record of their uh, predecessors in the fossil? Like, Do we know how they evolved?
5: Uh, yes, we do. There's uh, a group of organisms called, uh, nothosaurs, which are superficially plesiosaur-like in their general morphology, except their limbs are not quite developed into flippers. They're still, um, more like, uh, webbed feet. And so these guys could walk around on the land. And then if you go back further still, uh, more basal to, you know, towards the bottom of their family tree, you have even smaller animals called pachypleurosaurs. And these are 30 centimeter long, uh, lizard-like organisms. Um, you might be forgiven for mistaking them for a baby plesiosaur, for example. But all of these animals, um, although superficially look, looking like a plesiosaur, um, strictly speaking, aren't plesiosaurs. And they're actually a lot older. These are from the Triassic period, whereas all plesiosaurs are from the later Jurassic and Cretaceous periods. Their actual position within the reptilia, within the reptile family tree, is, uh, is still uncertain. Um, but we have a good idea of where they are, or at least what their closest relatives are.
3: Very cool. Well, this is all really neat.
5: <laughs> yeah, they're, they're awesome animals. I'm sorry that some of the, the answers are, are are so ambiguous. It's just that's the state of the, the science at the moment. And like I say, it, it, on one hand, it's frustrating. But on the other hand, it, it makes them all the more interesting because you can speculate and and be forgiven. Your science can only take you so far.
3: Well, I think one of the the factors that we look at, especially on our show, is that um, we think science is really about solving mysteries. So Mm -hmm. you've got lots of real mysteries here, but you've also got a lot of reasons why uh, we think it's safe to say, okay, there's not a plesiosaur living in Loch Ness. I I think Mm -hmm. uh, we would be seeing their bodies. We would be seeing the live ones come up. We would be seeing them mating and...
5: Uh, <laughs> yeah. there's lots of There'd, reasons, right? And also, you'd expect to see a lot more sightings today as well. Because, That's right. Uh, yeah. More people watching with, with, with a More people screen. looking, more people with cameras, cameras on their phones, cameras you know everywhere. So um, if there was a real phenomenon here, if there was a real police hall living in Loch Ness, you'd expect the number of sightings to go up. You'd expect the number of photographs to go up. And actually, the reverse is happening, and you're finding less and less and less. Exactly. So... I think, I think it's a very clear trend, and I think it's, it's quite obvious what that means.
3: But at the same time, there's plenty of mysteries the science is tackling. These are really good examples, you know. Yeah, so yeah. I, I,
5: I think it's, it's actually quite frustrating as a plesiosaur researcher. You can't have a, a plesiosaur news story if there's a new species of plesiosaur described in the press or, or some new discovery on their anatomy or on their biology and it hits the press, it's impossible for that story to go ahead without some mention of the Loch Ness Monster in there. And it's actually quite frustrating because there's so many more interesting aspects of plesiosaurs without the references to the Loch Ness Monsters and the sea monsters.
0: Yeah, And you've said on your website as well that you were interviewed by someone recently and they asked you up front if the Loch Ness Monster is a plesiosaur or a cousin of the plesiosaur. And yeah, exactly, people... yeah.
5: Yeah, just pre- pre- presuming that there is a, a, a Loch Ness monster in the first place, it, it was quite yes. surprising. Yeah, that's exactly what uh, prompted me to write the article on living plesiosaurs on my website in the first place because I was I was quite surprised that uh, people actually presume there was something there at all, let alone whether it's a plesiosaur or something else.
3: Have you looked at um, coelacanth swimming? You just reminded me of that. They
5: don't they have <laughs> four um, fins. They may have four fins. The difference between the coelacanths um, and the plesiosaurs is that plesiosaurs didn't have a a tail for locomotion as well. So the plesiosaurs (laughs) plesiosaurs were purely using their limbs to move around, whereas most of the aquatic organisms use a tail. So the the whales and the dolphins and the fish and even the other groups of marine reptiles such as the ichthyosaurs and the mosasaurs, they were all using their tails for locomotion. Actually, even the ancestors of the plesiosaurs, the nothosaurs I mentioned earlier and the pachypleurosaurs, their mode of locomotion was also using this snake-like undulating motion with the whole of their body to move through the water. Somewhere along the line into the evolution of plesiosaurs, um, their locomotion changed from this axial locomotion emanating from the spine to this paraxial locomotion locomotion emanating from the limbs. Um, So it's interesting why this happened. Again, this is another aspect of their paleobiology and evolution, which um, we're only really just starting to understand, but it's actually um, a very interesting aspect of it because um moving with your limbs underwater is actually quite an odd way to go about you know, moving underwater. It makes much more sense to use your tail
3: if 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 your tail's not become a little bit nub like these uh
5: <laughs> yeah yeah. Uh, Although I have found some evidence in in, uh, one or two plesiosaurs where there may be just uh, a kink in the tail, maybe some compression from side to side, which uh, I've actually interpreted as evidence for um, some sort of expanse at the distal part of the tail, at the very tip of the tail, some sort of rudimentary fin. However, I'm not suggesting that they were using this for propulsion, but really just for maybe um, shifts in locomotion or maneuverability or stability or, or some other function.
3: Is there a relationship between the length of the neck and the length of the tail?
5: Um, no, there isn't actually. The, the length of the tail is actually quite standard. The uh, plesiosaur morphology generally is actually quite standard. All of them have quite a short tail. All of them have a round barrel like body. All of them have four wing-like flippers. All of the variation, the majority of the variation, seems to be only in the length of the neck and in the size of the head.
0: Well, to refer back to the toys that you've got on your website, they're, mm-hmm. uh, they're, the way that they're portrayed is very different in each each uh, particular example.
5: Yeah, yeah. It's interesting as well. This also uh, changes with time as well, so you have a, a nice correlation with the science and with the, the form of the toys. One of the most frustrating aspects of... The toys of plesiosaurs, in particular, is that the heads of plesiosaurs in the toys are more often than not appallingly inaccurate. The main problem I found is that the eye sockets, the orbits, are usually positioned way too far back in the in the um, fenestry, in these openings in the back of the skull, which house the muscles, and so. In dinosaurs, this is the case. You have orbits which are positioned quite far back, but in plesiosaurs, the orbits are actually positioned halfway along the skull, quite near the front of the skull. And so I think what's happening is that the sculptors are taking the first plesiosaur reconstruction that they find on a Google search and using that as the basis for their toy and uh, not realizing that the, you know, this is actually based on a dinosaur. So that's quite frustrating to see this sort of inaccuracies cropping up again and again and again in pleasing subtoys. Just uh, it niggles at me.
3: You've got me all interested in this whole why do they have long necks question now. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So who's working on that research? Or are they just waiting for a breakthrough?
5: Um, Well, there's uh, several people working on it. Um, There's there's a researcher called Leslie Noe who has done some research into the um, posture of the neck, and his research concluded that in contrast to the uh, old reconstructions where the, the necks were lifted upwards, he concluded that the necks primarily could move downwards and would shoot straight down towards the seabed. Um, and his hypothesis is that the necks were used um, almost like a, a vacuum cleaner to suck up stuff around the on the seabed and that they were eating crustaceans and, and organisms living in the sediment, which is it's a, it's just another hypothesis to add to the list.
3: I was it would help if you could tell how fast they moved wouldn 't it
5: yeah yeah a few uh, studies have tried to look at the uh, speed of plesiosaurs, but again they, they vary quite significantly based on the the uh, shape and size of their head and neck and uh, having a long neck on the on the front of your body when you 're trying to be a streamlined organism is uh, is uh, quite an unusual uh, feature to have, and uh, this is probably why. Um, we were talking about the stiffness of the long neck earlier, and the, trying to maintain a streamlined shape is probably the reason why they had this very stiff um, neck. If you have a wibbly-wobbly neck, you have all sorts of problems trying to move around uh, at, at fast speeds. If you hold out your neck um, straight out in front, like the, the power of a ship, then you can go through the water a lot quicker, a lot smoother. So... Yeah, there's all sorts of. There's, it's, it's easy to make an argument why no animal should have a very long neck like a plesiosaur. It's more difficult to say why they should.
3: Yeah, when when you're actually
5: given the evidence, you got to go with uh okay. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really difficult. So, like I say, I think that I think the, the the most likely hypothesis is that they were using their neck to sneak up on prey. Rather than to, to use it proactively like a fishing rod or anything like this, I think that they were sneaking into a school of fish and snapping
3: one. I think, you know, the default, I always think about, you know, food, 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 but you know, there's also sex. Of course, yeah.
5: Yeah, there's a few hypotheses for sauropod dinosaurs. Sauropod dinosaurs are these animals with a very long neck. Of course, long neck in a terrestrial animal you can compare directly with an extant animal like a giraffe, and you can say, of course, the long neck is being used to reach leaves high up on the trees. But there have actually been some hypotheses for sexual selection in sauropod uh, necks. And I've wondered if maybe the long plesiosaur neck is... um, has been selected because of sexual pressures, um, a little bit like the tail of a peacock. You look at the tail of a peacock, its function isn't really obviously apparent, um, and it doesn't make any sense for catching food or being stronger. It only makes sense for being, you know, sexy. And so maybe the long neck increased in length to be uh, considered a a sexy adaptation. Who knows? Speculation.
3: It's speculative. That's precisely the example I was thinking. Yeah, so, yeah. Although I'm, I'm trying to picture these animals, you know, having intercourse, and it's not working. <laughs> right. so, it's, I've never
5: actually thought about it.
3: <laughs> I, you know, I think don't sharks kind of go belly to belly?
5: If I yeah, I, I guess I'm I, I presuming that plesiosaurs must have done similar thing, I, and this is how dolphins achieve this as well. So yeah, I'm, I guess so.
3: That's weird. Looking in my mind, I need to yeah. stop. <laughs>
5: I, I, their necks weren't particularly flexible, but maybe they could have entwined a little. Who knows? Oh, that's so romantic. <laughs> <laughs>
3: They're necking. The earliest to do so. So, okay.
5: It might be worth mentioning one unusual habit that they have. Um, the majority of plesiosaur skeletons, the long-necked ones anyway, are often found with um, fossil stones in their stomach region. So these oh, really? Are, okay. Yeah, these are called gastroliths, or stomach stones, and they're actually found in many animals today. You can find them in uh, in birds. You know, birds eat grits. You can find them in crocodiles and uh, and several other organisms as well. And so there's this unusual habit in plesiosaurs, which um, actually going back to their ability to live in fresh water, the, the environments in which the plesiosaurs lived were actually very silty sediments. And so the fact that they are often found with stones in their stomach, which are very um, different from the sediments in which they're preserved, indicates that they're actually going very close to shore, maybe along beaches, maybe even swimming up rivers, to proactively seek out these stones to swallow them. The function of the stones is another one of these big mysteries in plesiosaur research. Were they used for ballast, for keeping them uh, positioned correctly in the water column? We have mentioned that they were air breathers, and so this might be a method for, for keeping them down, a lot like um, the The ballast in a in a that a diver would have, maybe they were used for grinding up food in the stomach, or maybe they were used for something different altogether, so we don
3: 't know if they had a gizzard
5: we don 't know if they had a gizzard no no but we do know that they were eating uh, stones, so quite an unusual habit. And some of the very long-necked elasmosaurids, the elasmosaurids are the the plesiosauroids with very long necks, as many as 72 vertebrae in an individual neck, which is the largest number of vertebrae in any living vertebrate organism um, and extinct organism, as far as I'm aware. And these have been found with um, as many as 300 gastroliths in the stomach region, and these gastroliths are each you know, pretty sizable. You, know, you could hold them in the, the palm of your hand and they'd, they'd be quite a weight. So they were serving some kind of interesting function. We're not quite sure exactly what they're
3: Okay, so you're saying that the number of vertebra in in each of these variations actually is changing within the same order.
5: Within the same order, yeah. There's lots of different uh, types of plesiosaur species, and each of those different species has a, a different number of vertebrae. They, they also have a different form and uh, morphology of vertebrae as well. So some of them are elongate, and the long neck forms, for example, are elongate, and the short neck forms are, are quite squat and short. That's interesting. Yeah, and also, the, the evolution of the long neck and arose from two main evolutionary processes. Firstly was this one that I mentioned, the elongation of the individual cervical vertebrae. So each vertebra in the neck, each bone in the neck was stretched out. So this provided additional length to the neck. The second mechanism was the addition of individual vertebrae into the neck. So not only do you have an increase in the length of the vertebra, you have an increase in the number of the vertebra. So this is the the main mechanism by which they were increasing the length of the neck. It's also possible that they increased the length of the neck by shifting the pectoral girdle. The pectoral girdle is the bones which uh, um, support the, the forelimbs, so the arms. So it's possible that the pectoral girdle and the arms shifted backwards along the vertebral column increasing the length of the neck and shortening the length of the backbone but this is this is quite a a new aspect for research so there's all these interesting mechanisms for the evolution of the long neck
3: seriously that's uh that seems like there must have been a tremendous pressure to have a really long neck
5: yeah there, there was something going on we just don't know what
3: do we know how long a uh, period of time are we talking about for these kind of variations to appear
5: Well, even the very first plesiosaurs have uh, a long neck, and uh, some of their ancestors, the nothosaurs and the pachypleurosaurs, which we talked about earlier, they have a reasonably long neck as well. So it could simply be that the long neck is just their ancestral form, which has been um, retained, and then whatever function it was serving once it was was present was expanded upon later on in their evolution. But uh, the very first plesiosaurs in the earliest Jurassic have a long neck, and then in the latest mastriction, the very end of the Cretaceous, just before the extinction of the plesiosaurs, their necks are, are even longer. But on the other side of things, you also have this um, pliosaur line of plesiosaurs. These are the short neck plesiosaurs. So simultaneously you have this other group of plesiosaurs which are, are developing a shorter and shorter and shorter neck. So the earliest plesiosaurs have an, an intermediate sort of size neck, with maybe 30 vertebrae or so, then one lineage shoots off and has a huge increase in the number of vertebrae, increases the length of the neck. And then on the other side of the of the order, you have this short-necked family, which are, in, are decreasing the, the size of the neck. And some some of the plesiosaurs in the pliosaur superfamily have as few as about 13 vertebrae in the neck. So there's this huge dichotomy within the group in terms of their morphology.
3: That is so interesting. <laughs> And I think because of the uh, the I, when I always think about the selective pressures and how these sort of um, mutations and other variations can radically change the morphology of an animal uh, mm-hmm. over time, and uh, this seems like a really great example of how these changes can take place within a, yeah, a, a yeah. single line. Mm-hmm.
5: What, what really interests me is is the lack of this long neck in any other marine organism. That's the most intriguing aspect of the mystery to me, because you would think that if this long neck had such a huge advantage that you would expect to see it at least in one or two species of fish, for example, or maybe some long-necked whales or dolphins, and you just don't see it. Yeah. So, of course, you have evolutionary constraints within these groups, but um, the rarity of the long neck combined with its huge success within the plesiosauria it's a huge
3: mystery. That sure seems like a, an indication. It's probably more like a sexual pressure than a than a than a food one.
5: Yeah, to me, yeah. To me,
3: if you have because the same animals would be competing for the same food sources. So yeah. I don't know. But you know, it's just my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> and I am not a scientist. <laughs> <laughs> That's neat, though. That's very interesting. Um, mm-hmm. Well, thank you for coming on and answering so many questions about plesiosaurs.
0: My pleasure. Thank you, Adam.
3: Thanks for listening to another episode of Monster Talk. Today we heard from Dr. Adam Stewart-Smith of the National Museum of Ireland. You can learn more about plesiosaurs and Dr. Smith's work at his website, plesiosauria.com. Monster Talk is the podcast companion to monstertalk.org and its sister site, monsterscience.org which collects articles and critically examines monster planes. Theme music, as always, was provided by Peach Stealing Monkeys. I don't even know if he goes back and listens.
0: <laughs> Actually, he probably doesn't listen in. Oh, that's something he's done, and that's in the past, and he's moving on.
3: And it's not available on audio cassette. <laughs> <laughs>